It is frequently claimed that when presented with a new pen, the first thing we do is write our name. Likewise, when purchasing a smartphone, the first photograph we take is a selfie. And when encountering wet cement, we act as if we're on Hollywood's Walk of Fame and make imprints with our hands. Which shouldn't come as any surprise, since as far back as Egypt's pyramids in Djoser, Scotland's Knapp at Hower, and the oldest of them all, the Neolithic tomb in Ireland's Newgrange, we've been looking for ways to memorialise our existence. Here is the multi-Oscar-winning director Alfonso Cuaron, back in December, promoting Roma on Netflix. Roma is very personal to me. Much of it is based upon my memory. It's a film about a family, a city, and a country. But ultimately, it's about humanity. I wanted to make a film that was both intimate and universal. A film that speaks to everyone. My hope is that in some way, Roma connects with you and your past, with your memory. And I invite you to share your experience with me and the world. Filmmakers have been doing that ever since the birth of the medium. On December the 28th, 1895, the Lumiere brothers screened to a fee-paying public 10 short films that were effectively home movies. The most domestic of them all was Feeding the Baby, which showed Louis Lumiere and his wife Marguerite feeding their baby daughter André. This is the key thing cinema allows us to do, see ourselves in the world by projecting ourselves onto the world. Feeding the Baby looks a typical scene, but it is typical only after a fashion. Yes, it was typical of the Lumiere's milieu, a house with gardens, tea on the patio, the Lumiere's in front of the camera and the Lumiere's behind the camera. More than that, the Lumiere's showing themselves to an audience made up of people very similar to them. And that principle has since become the cornerstone of film storytelling. Stories made by us, about us, for us. Here is screenwriting teacher and author of The Anatomy of Story, John Truby, explaining the two essential elements needed for an audience to identify with a character. It's interesting that what makes an audience care about a character really comes down to only two things. The fundamental weakness of that character and the character's goal in the story. In other words, what is that personal problem inside that is hurting the hero in such a fundamental way that it's ruining their life? And the entire story is going to play out the solving of that problem. When it was announced back in 2016 that Cuaron's next film would be about his growing up in Mexico City during the early 1970s, the immediate impression was that he was going to follow in the tradition of François Truffaut with the 400 blows, Federico Fellini's Amacord, André Tarkovsky's Mirror, Ingmar Bergman's Fanny and Alexander, Louis Malle's Au Revoir les Enfants, John Borman's Hope and Glory, Woody Allen's Radio Days, Terence Davies's The Long Day Closes, and Spike Lee's Crooklyn, all of which have imprinted proofs of the director's childhood experiences. TV off. I'm watching the news. I don't care what it is. No TV on a school night. Keep the screen while she wants. I'm watching this game. Hey, no TV. Turn it off. However, Quaron did something quite different with Roma. He positioned himself on the furthest margins of the story, and focused instead on the family's live-in maid, Cleo, played by the first-time actress Yelitsa Aparicio. And staying true to his memories. Cuaron insisted that Cleo be played by an indigenous Mexican woman. In other words, 
Quaron's childhood film would not be about himself. To see what can happen when people on screen are different from the filmmakers, let's look at the very first film the Lumiere screened that December evening, Workers Leaving the Factory. It seems to be an honest document of the staff departing at the end of their shift. But in actual fact, it was all very orchestrated. Note the fine clothes the workers are wearing. Certainly not the apparel you'd expect anyone to don while toiling away in a factory. No, the workers are out in their Sunday best because the Lumieres told them they were being filmed. Which tells us that when filmmakers present people other than themselves, they have a tendency to present them as how the filmmaker sees them, but not as they are. Which is what Robert Townsend brilliantly satirised in 1987 with his landmark comedy Hollywood Shuffle, which Townsend wrote, produced, directed and starred in as Bobby Taylor, an actor struggling to land a role in a picture that does not reduce him to a stereotype. Hi, my name is Robert Taylor and I'm a black actor. I had to learn to play these slave parts and now you can too at Hollywood's first black acting school. It teaches you everything. Learn jive talk 101. You motherfucking jive turkey motherfucker. All right, all right, that's good, that's good. You work, all right, you try it. You, you fucking mothers. Fucking no, 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 man, no, 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 that's wrong, that's wrong. Watch me, man. Just be cool. Jive turkey motherfucker. While today, half the world's population enjoys life in democracies, it's good to remember that when cinema began, more than nine-tenths of us served under monarchies. So it took two global conflicts to shake loose an ideology that had ruled the world for thousands of years. And it was only with the end of the Second World War that cinema saw its first honest attempts to depict a social strata marginalised to the benefit of the ruling classes. Yes, Charlie Chaplin's Little Tramp appeared to represent the working class, but really he was nothing more than a caricature designed to make people laugh and therefore overlook the injustices he suffered. Which means that the Italian Irrealist films of the 1940s and 50s functioned as a break with the past. Ossessione, Rome Open City, Paisan, Bicycle Thieves, La Terra Trema, Bitter Rice and La Strada were all part of a socio-political movement committed to the defeat of fascism and the restoration of human dignity. Neorealism was so seismic it is hard to overestimate its influence. Be it British, Indian, Iranian, Brazilian or Senegalese, there is not a corner of the globe that has not been affected by its style, focus and content. Even American cinema has absorbed its tenets. Not just Robert Rosson's Body and Soul, Elia Kazan's On the Waterfront or Jerry Schatzberg's Panic in Needle Park, but more recently F. Gary Gray's Friday, Alexander Payne's Nebraska and Sean Parker's Tangerine show the tradition still thrives. <laughs> Roma extends the neorealist aesthetic. Characters hitherto placed in the margins of Mexican cinema take centre screen. They are portrayed by non-professional actors. The film is shot not in a studio but on location and in a technique Cuaron has practiced across Itumama Tambien, Children of Men and most obviously Gravity, several events unfold in real time. For comparison, consider a crucial moment in Ossessione, Lucina Visconti's unauthorised adaptation of James M. Cain's The Postman Always Rings Twice. 
Late in the film, Giovanna, played by Clara Calame, enters the tavern's kitchen, which is stacked with unwashed dishes, bottles and cutlery. She goes to make herself something to eat, but instead falls asleep at the table. The scene lasts over two minutes and does not forward the plot. By classical definition, nothing happens. But a lot happens, because it shows that Giovanna is too exhausted even to eat. Now consider the moment in Roma when Cleo and Pepe, played by Marco Graf, lie down on the rooftop to play dead. Again, it looks like nothing happens, but a lot happens because by getting Cleo to play dead, it foreshadows her miscarriage later in the film. In Visconti's next picture, La Terra Trema, he depicted the hardships experienced by the Velastro family trying to eke out a living in a Sicilian fishing village. The film opens with a statement read out by Visconti, where he declares Italian is not a language of the poor. With the exception of Visconti's narration, every word that is spoken in the film is Sicilian, which was a very pointed decision, and one designed to reflect the commitment the film had to the plight of the indigenous population. Likewise, Quaran opens Roma with a caption, explaining that the film's dialogue is spoken in Spanish and Misteco, an ancient indigenous language composed of a variety of dialects that are spoken in villages in southern Mexico, in an area known as La Misteca. But Visconti's film influenced Roma in another way. One of the Velastro sons, Vanni, played by Antonina Macali, goes to the harbour where the morning's catch is being bartered. But instead of focusing exclusively on the sun, Visconti places him in the background of the shot and obscures our vision of him by placing the arguing fisherman in the foreground. Rather than focusing on one of the story's protagonists, Visconti's staging foregrounded the socio-economic reality. Now consider the sequence in Roma when a heavily pregnant Cleo and the family's grandmother, played by Veronica Garcia, go to buy a crib for the baby. Having parked the car, they walk to the department store. But instead of focusing on Cleo, Quaron places her in the background of the shot and obscures our vision of her by placing buses manned by military police in the foreground. The staging is a harbinger for the socio-political reality that is about to invade Cleo's life. In addition, there is the extended sequence where Cleo takes the long trek to confront Furman, the father of her child, played by Jorge Antonio Guerrero. Decamping from the bus into a remote and destitute village, Cleo is confronted with a local election campaign in full swing, the voice of the candidate blasting out from a tannoy. But the candidate himself is nowhere to be seen. Instead, in the background, we see a circus act climbing into a cannon and being fired across the sky. The politics of distraction. And then, soon after, Cleo sees Furman taking part in a martial arts class. The instructor takes a blindfold and effectively adopts a Vrixasana pose as practiced in a yoga session. The students are supposed to adopt the same position, but none of them can. The only person who can do it is Cleo, 
In other words, a supposedly great instructor's special skill is a simple task for an ordinary woman. The entire sequence is so blithely poignant, yet quietly satirical, as to be worthy of any number of Fellini's pictures. Also consider the moment in Vittorio De Sica's Umberto D, where Maria, a pregnant housemaid played by Maria Pia Casilio, who has been abandoned by her lover, tries to light the kitchen stove. She strikes a match, but it fails to spark. She tries again and fails again. She tries it a third time, and this time it strikes. Prior to neorealism, that would have been considered an error, and the director would have called for another take. But De Sica went with the real-time honesty of the event. For comparison, consider Roma's opening shot. It is an overhead view of floor tiles. We hear sounds off-screen of water being splashed and then a brush scrubbing the tiles. More splashes, more scrubbing. Finally, the water rushes into view, washing over the tiles, and with a reflection in the water, we suddenly see a skylight above us. And flying silently across the sky is a jet plane. This simple action unfolds over three and a half minutes. Without the advent of neorealism, would any director have dared to devote that amount of time to such an undramatic and seemingly mundane a task as washing tiles? Here is Quaron accepting the Oscar for Best Director at this year's Academy Awards. I want to thank the Academy for recognizing a film centered around an indigenous woman, one of the 70 million domestic workers in the world without works without work rights, a character that historically had been rele relegated in the background in cinema. As artists, our job is to look where others don't. This responsibility becomes much more important in times when we are being encouraged to look away. Yet it is interesting that when Roma premiered at the Venice Film Festival last September, Quaron decided to draw attention not to its neorealist roots, but chose instead to introduce Roma as a deeply personal film a film fed by memories of his childhood. Perhaps Coran sensed that if he were to announce his film as a descendant of a film movement closely linked with a strong socio-political agenda, he would be alienating viewers. But either way, by positioning Roma as a memory film, Coran was consciously alluding to Federico Fellini, whose career began as a screenwriter, collaborating on such essential neorealist films as Roberto Rossellini's Rome Open City and Paisan, before branching out to direct deeply personal films fed by memories of childhood, eight and a half, Roma and Amacord. But is it possible to make a neorealist film that is fed by memories? Is it possible, as Quaron claimed in his Netflix promo, to turn something personal into something universal? Fellini put it very succinctly when, in a 1959 interview with film critic Gideon Bachmann, he explained that Neorealism is not about what you show, but how you show it. It's simply a way of looking at the world without preconceptions or prejudices. Which means that when Quaron made the decision to put the family's maid Cleo at the centre of Roma, it wasn't so much what he was going to show, but how he was going to show it. And how he was going to show it was without preconceptions or prejudices. Here is Quaron again, this time in the press room after winning his Oscars, speaking about the casting of Yalizia Aparicio. Just think about this. She had never done a film before. Half of the dialogues are in Mixteco. She doesn't speak Mixteco. 
she learned the Misteco for the film uh, with a perfect, not, not only intonation and accent, but also emotionally truthful. In a filmography that includes Francis Hodgins Burnett, Charles Dickens, J.K. Rowling and P.D. James, as well as original screenplays co-written with his brother Carlos and his son Jonas, set in search of a mythical beach as well as an outer space, Roma is without question Quaron's most personal film. Yet by placing himself at the periphery and positioning Cleo at the centre, he has also made his most universal. And yet there is more to it than that. Roma may be set in the past, but in more ways than one, it may well signify the future of cinema. Not just what we see, but how we see it. Do you think you can get a movie at the video store faster than Netflix? Let's race. One, two, three, go. Congratulations, you lost. Care for a rematch? Fine. One, too bad, lost again. One more try? Really? Sorry, no. But don't feel bad, because nothing can get you movies and TV episodes faster than Netflix.